Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the GM Cancer podcast. This podcast is all about exploring the amazing work going on in cancer services right across Greater Manchester and talking to those people that are doing that work every single day. We had a huge emphasis on safety. Nobody knew what would happen with coronavirus. The patients are all supporting each other and they're really they're really forming a community. I found a tumour also on the right thyroid, which that was another shocker. I'm Steve Bland and I present a BBC podcast called You, Me and the Big C, which was set up by my wife, Rachel who was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016. Sadly, Rachel died in 2018, uh, but in those two years, we experienced firsthand just how incredible the people of Greater Manchester are in cancer services. Each episode is gonna focus on a different theme and where else could we start other than with COVID and the impact that COVID has had and the pandemic has had on cancer services in Greater Manchester. We're going to start with Professor David Shackley, who's the Medical Director of GM Cancer. We're also going to speak to Kirsty Rollinson-Groves, who's the Programme Manager and Exercise Specialist for the Prehab for Cancer Programme. And last but by no means least is the fabulous Charmaine Sangster. Now, Charmaine's a patient who was diagnosed with breast cancer some years ago. And then during the first part of lockdown, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So we'll talk to her about what it's been like as a patient during this really challenging 15 months. So let's get into this then. Professor David Shackley, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to, you know, February, March time last year, the start of the pandemic. You know, the first we'd really heard about COVID. What did you guys do at the start of this period to mitigate, you know, what was coming up or, or, or to plan for what, you know, what might happen or what the impact on cancer services might be? So there was uh, a huge impact. This is less patients coming forwards. And then there was a number of uh, restrictions in place for patient safety uh, and other reasons, which also uh, impacted on our ability to diagnose and treat patients. And of course, uh, up to a quarter of all hospital beds had COVID patients in at one point. So, you know, there was quite an obvious uh, obstruction to getting normal care done. So in Greater Manchester, we put a number of steps in place quite early on, um, which have proved to be uh, quite successful. So the first is the Alliance was um, well positioned in the Greater Manchester healthcare decision-making bodies, uh, something called GM Gold. We were able to get a seat on that and we were able to push the cancer agenda forward. So cancer was right there as as one of the absolute top priorities after emergency care. So really good to to get that agreed really up front. And that meant that people had a focus on cancer diagnostics, referrals and treatments right from the start. We had a huge emphasis on safety. Nobody knew back in spring 2020 what would happen with coronavirus. We didn't know whether it was safe to operate. We didn't know whether it was safe to do radiotherapy or chemotherapy. There was huge concerns that... um, Patients who might have their immune systems reduced because of cancer, they would be particularly susceptible. Um, so a huge anxiety and no one had any prior experience about how to take this forward. So we had a, a big focus initially on safety. So we did a lot of testing, a lot of isolation of patients before they came for treatment. We had green zones in hospitals and, and GP areas where COVID patients were excluded from. Um, and we had various protocols in place to try and make things safe. Uh, and then in terms of surgery, we went on to do an audit of that that we started back in April and May 
last year and we carried on, in fact, we, we have carried on doing it. And that's shown that all those safety measures we had in place, like testing all patients before they came into hospital, uh, the green zones and so on, uh, proved to be hugely successful in avoiding patients catching COVID as a consequence of coming into hospital. So um, the thing that we thought was really important was continuing cancer care. So at no point did it stop. It did reduce slightly, but nowhere near as much as other healthcare services. In terms of surgery, um, we set up something called a cancer hub, which is a mechanism where people were able to not just have their operation in their own hospital, but use a different hospital that might have more capacity. And we kind of built that model up along with some other places across England that use the same model, but we were one of the first to develop that. And we also were quite upfront about sharing capacities, sharing diagnostics, sharing uh, treatment things. And we developed developed oversight as well. So there's a number of things there, but primarily we were we were right central in the decision making. We had a focus on safety from the outset, and we focused on continuing cancer care. Uh, and then more latterly, we've been able to to really ratchet that up so that now we've already begun to see some recovery. That's what I was actually going to ask now about the, you know, the recovery, you know, working through the obvious kind of backlog that's been caused by, as you say, the massive reduction in, in, in surgery and you know, screening and treatment, all that kind of thing that we've seen impacted. How, how do we work through this backlog? And do we actually even know, you know, the scale of the problem, really? Well, we've got a bit of a handle on the scale of the problem. Um, one of the real anxieties that we have is that patients who have not been referred, who would normally have been referred. So the people who might have cancer out there who don't yet know. So in the last few months, we've already, um, you know, really recovered that referral. Um, so we're seeing um, 120% of normal referrals month in, month out for the last three or four months. I know that you do a lot of clinical work still. You're very much on the hospital, you know, the, the floor of the hospital working day to day. What's it been like for people? Because I imagine it must be incredibly frustrating for people to, you know, to see maybe patients that, that, that or numbers of patients that you should be getting through. You know, you're in the business of helping people and curing people and saving lives. What's it been like, you know, seeing your hands, you know, tied to a degree? Well, at first, there was enormous professional anxiety about their own protection, actually, if I'm honest. Um, so you've heard of PPE, personal protective equipment, and nobody knew um, how much professionals would be, uh, you know, able or, or get the get the coronavirus. How easy would it be to contract it and then potentially die or become seriously ill from it? No one knew in the early days. So everyone was wearing a huge amount of PPE that was really kind of um, awkward, hot, claustrophobic, um, and made things like surgery and any intervention really quite uncomfortable. So a lot of that went on at first, and there was a lot of anxiety, um, both for patients, but also for themselves, I guess. Uh, I definitely saw that a lot in the early phases of the pandemic. That that slipped away now. There's... there's, there's a lot of confidence now from all professionals that they are safe and particularly the vaccination programme has helped that. So let's look to the future a little bit now. What have what have you guys learned uh, from the pandemic and, and how are you going to kind of put that into action in the way that you do things going forward or, or, or the way that, you know, cancer services in, in Greater Manchester operate going forward? Well, I think 
we'd already recognised this, but that it really uh, brought us brought home the fact that we need to work as a system. Now, a conurbation or a city region like Manchester, you can't have an individual hospital trying to run its cancer services on its own. Um, so it needs we need to work as a system at GM level, so over a population of three million. Um, and that's really been brought home. And we have to share our resources in the system, share our capacity so that the equity um, is right. So what I mean by that is all patients wait the same length of time for tests, all patients wait the same length of time for treatment. And we drive uh, those standards up together as a system and work together on the problems. So whilst we did that before, I think the uh, pandemic has really brought that home. And I think there's, there's certainly a strong move in the NHS to collaborate so much more rather than compete. Uh, and that's been refreshing. Um, yeah, I think I think the other thing is we've, we've got to um, continue to be adaptable and open-minded to, to whatever's going to come at us and not continue with, you know, the same old, same old. We have to keep innovating and changing. Um, one of the big things that's come from this that's been positive has been virtual working and virtual connections with people, virtual clinics for patients that are much more convenient for patients rather than have to travel everywhere. Um, professionals have been able to meet much more quickly uh, to make decisions about patient care and, and other managerial issues in a way that we couldn't do before. So it's been a, there has been actually quite a lot of positives from this and a huge amount of um, new teamwork that's been engendered by this as well in the NHS. Um, a lot of people who've been through difficult times and uh, have come through and the, the, the bonding and strength of feeling between NHS uh, professionals has, has grown because of this. Well, we see an element of the virtual stuff carry on, you know, the early appointments maybe or the, the, or the I don't know, some, um, some element of that you know, virtual journey for a patient uh, carry on past the pandemic? I think so, but I think it will um, come back more to patient choice. And um, so I think we went to a position where um, almost 80% of GP interactions were virtual, didn't we? And, and it was a similar number in hospital. So I still think we'll have a blended approach, but rather than bring people back just to give them a quick result that might be reassuring, I think there's much more use of a quick phone conversation or a virtual clinic um, option that, that, that saves patients a lot of visit. Um, I mean, the other thing, just just to focus, uh, I bring back uh, to a point I was just making in the previous question was one of the things the pandemic's done is made us realise that there's quite significant differences uh, between treatment, diagnostics and opportunities for people across Greater Manchester. And we have to focus on reducing those. Interesting, isn't it? With with you know, with so much, uh, you know, with so many challenges, the challenge actually is to see how you come out of it the other side, rather than almost you sort of muddle through to a degree, you know, when you're in the middle of it. But it's how how it affects things going forward that's the big thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the other interesting thing is it's always nice to look back. We always look back in hindsight, very uh, from a position of being an expert, but at the time. I mean, in spring last year, amongst professionals throughout the world, there was huge anxiety about this personally and for patients, a real worry about what was going to happen. There was very little confidence, even back in October and November, that the vaccine programme would be anywhere near as effective as it is. Best guesses were 50% effectiveness. And we, you know, we've received results in the real world now 
that's uh, 80, 90% and more. Uh, and that's allowing us to, to look forward in much more confidence, but it could have been a completely different position that we're in without that vaccine program. So it's been a, uh, one of the other things has been a, a huge double realization that science and, and focusing on um, scientific advances is so important. That's maybe the last thing to touch on, the the impact that COVID has had on scientific advances going forward in cancer as well, because it's had a big impact on, on research and trials and that kind of thing, hasn't it, as well? That's right. And even if you just look at the vaccination um, programme, a lot of research into new types of immunisation, uh, so-called mRNA vaccines, such as the Pfizer one and the Moderna one, which is slightly different to the older technology that's in the AstraZeneca one. Uh, and that's potentially allowing people to reappraise using vaccines for cancer treatment. That's always been tried to some extent and never been as successful as what we'd like. But with this new technology, it may well be possible for us to describe and make vaccines for cancer in a way that, that we couldn't have envisaged, you know, a year ago. Right, next up, we've got Kirsty Rollinson-Groves. Now, Kirsty is the program manager for the Prehab for Cancer program. Uh, Kirsty, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Hi. So can we kick things off by you just explaining just a little bit about how Prehab for Cancer works and how you've had to adapt the program and the way it works during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, the Prehab for Cancer scheme was set up in April 2019 um, to work with three tumour groups primarily, which were lung, um, esophageal and colorectal. And the aim of the Prehab for Cancer programme is to prepare and optimise somebody for their surgery or treatments that are coming up. So we use the analogy of um, people don't run a marathon without training and the physiological and psychological impact of cancer treatments and surgeries can can be analogized if you like to that sort of big event so we basically train and optimize patients to hopefully um, improve recovery rates and and give benefits around um, their functional capacity and hopefully get people um, recovering better and quicker and back to what, what they want to do we also have a rehabilitation arm of the program so um, patients come back to us after their surgery and treatments for about 12 weeks and we really focus on a patient-centered rehabilitation program. Uh, we used to be delivering across the whole of Greater Manchester um, using the GM Active network of leisure centers. But obviously, with lockdown one, there was an enforced government closure of leisure centers. Um, and then because we were GM, our leisure centers didn't open up at all really last year. So we completely redesigned the service to offer a fully remote service. Um, it was really important to us that we started with a fully accessible service. So we went to the good old pen and paper and posting out of home exercise and um, tailoring home exercise for people. And we literally uh, printed them out, put them in envelopes and posted to people's houses with resistance bands to, um, to help them exercise and, and build up their strength. And then from that, we then built on more technological aspects of it. So we... We built online class timetables, uh, video call assessment clinics. Um, we have YouTube channels. We have remote monitoring of people's heart rates now. Um, and we just built and built and built on it. So, But we still, everybody still gets the old-fashioned home exercise program delivered to their house. 
So much of the cancer process, the journey for a patient has uh, become remote and adapted and changed uh, during the pandemic. But it strikes me that exercise and fitness classes are probably one of the most difficult things to take into that kind of virtual world. So how have you managed uh, to do it and how have the patients responded to that? Um, So we've done it by trying to keep trying to keep everything pretty much the same as we did, but without seeing people. So the, the success of our program is the amount of contacts that my team have with patients in the run-up to their surgery or treatment. It's two, three, possibly four times a week they'd be speaking to these patients, and, and that's why we get such good buy-in from patients. Um, and we still and we've kept that contact on the telephone. So everybody's got a telephone. You don't have to have technology to access our scheme. Um, and the patients have took really well to it. Um, they really enjoy the telephone calls um, and that personal contact. Um, and I think that's why they've they've took quite well to it is that we spend a lot of time with them. Um, they still get booked in for a telephone assessment with my team and that can take up to an hour on the phone. Um, and that's where my team really build the trust with, with the patients and build that relationship. Um, and, and it's, it's finding what access that patient has got and what they're going to respond to best. And if that is just the, the paper copy of the home exercise pack, then that's what, that's what we will get for them. Uh, if they do have technology, then we, then we design a pack around the technology. Whenever I do any fitness classes or any, any sort of workouts in the gym, I really need someone there to G me along, to kick me up the backside if I need it. Um, must be really frustrating for you and for the patients, I guess, to not be able to have that, you know, that close one-on-one contact. Yeah, that, um, you know, you can't, you know, get in their ear and tell them to keep going when they're struggling. Or, you know, how have you found that? Um, it, it's it's a bit more difficult to do it, but we still do it. Believe it or not, we do um, telephone exercise sessions where where people put us on speakerphone off their <laughs> telephones, um, and we know what what their home exercise pack is. So we will be doing it on our telephone in our in our houses, and yeah. and they're doing it in their houses. But what we've also found is people's family who are in the same house as them, or people in their support bubbles, have really helped be the coaches for us um so they're the people who are saying like like the wives are whinging at the husbands and, and the partners yeah. are whinging at partners and kids are whinging at parents to say <laughs> have you done your home exercise pack today because you know Kirsty or jack or carly is going to be ringing you um, and i'll tell them that you've not done it so so the support bubbles in people's houses have really helped us to get a sort of mini coach in there just how important is exercise uh, in this whole process for a cancer patient? Because you'd be forgiven if you were a patient uh, for thinking that maybe you should focus on on the treatment, the stuff that hopefully will cure you. Um, but how important is the exercise? So exercise is, is incredibly important. I think we've, we found that last, last year when the chief medical officer um, was quoted in saying, that there's no condition or no time where physical activity or exercise is not going to be of benefit. So I think, I think that, that sort of like set the stage. But in terms of, of cancer and especially coming up to treatments and surgery, you can get such good benefits from exercise for a physiological response. 
So if we improve somebody's lung function or we improve somebody's strength, then we know that their road to recovery is going to be going to be a little bit easier. The risk of complications could be reduced. The risk of recurrences can be reduced. And also what our program focuses on is the, the feeling of control and empowerment for patients. Yeah. So yes, uh, our focus is on exercise, well-being and nutrition, but we really do um, hone in on that well-being and we know exercise improves somebody's mental well-being. Um, in the way we exercise at the moment, there's a lot of peer support. So the patients are all supporting each other and they're really, they're really forming a community, which is really helping people's mental well-being in preparation for surgery. And then also in that immediate recovery, when people are feeling quite down and quite ill, um, then other patients are dropping messages to them, you know, to say that they're, they're missing yeah. them on the classes yeah. and they're looking at getting them back and stuff. So so there's that side of the program as well. So the importance of exercise is there for the physiological reasons of a bit of a smoother recovery and hopefully improving somebody's outcomes, but also everything else of the program around the nutrition and well-being. It's obviously been really, really, really tough, but are there any positives that you guys and your team are going to take uh, out of the pandemic in terms of the way that you've adapted, uh, the way the service has changed? Are there any things you'll carry forward, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future when we're out of this? um out of this lockdown period we've had um a lot of positives really in in this way of delivery um and we're definitely going forward we're definitely going to keep a, a sort of remote model um we're, we're going to blend it with back to face to face stuff but we found that we we really designed a, a real high quality home exercise arm of the program which is going to be useful when when things open up again because we are still going to have patients on treatment and patients who can't get to the gym and patients who who don't want to go to the gym like you know gyms gyms are not for everybody so having this time to really develop a a really high quality home service is just going to enhance our program because we are going to keep a lot of it for those patients who don't want to go to the gym or can't go to the gym um it also allowed us to have exercise classes and although they've been online it has shown that there is that need for peer support. So it's really yeah. important that when we do get back to face-to-face that we can try and keep that group feel. Um, we used to have group gym sessions where people got a little bit of that, um, but it, it's definitely going to be more focused on groups and getting and getting the patients together in groups. So if a patient is listening or if a clinician is listening and they think they've got a patient who you know, might benefit from this service, what do they need to do? What does a patient need to do? How can they get in touch with you to uh, to get involved? So the best thing to do is visit our website, which is uh, prehabforcancer.co.uk. And on there, there is a section for health professionals. So if there's clinicians who are looking at referring patients or setting up similar schemes in their areas, there's loads of information and resources on there. And there's also the for patients part of the website, which will link to all of our general exercise guidance. And you'll see videos of me and my team jumping about and doing seated exercise all the way up to high intensity exercise. So there's definitely something for everybody. And one of our patient representatives, Tony, is on there as well doing some exercise. So that's really good. And there's a, a whole host of patient stories who have been through the program as well, um, which are, which you know, they're, they're the best voice for the program, the patients that have been through them. To anybody listening, it is a really, really, really wonderful program. Um, 
And I think if, you know, if you've been inspired by this, if you think it might help you, get in touch with Kirsty, get in touch with her team and see how they might be able to help because, yeah, like I say, it's a wonderful, wonderful programme. Thank you so much, Kirsty. My final guest this week is probably the most important of our three, and that's because it's the patient voice. What has it been like going through cancer uh, during the pandemic as a patient? And I'm delighted to be able to speak to Charmaine Sangster, who's from Didsbury. Charmaine, hi. Hi. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. So, Charmaine, just uh, take us back because your your cancer journey, your cancer experience actually starts a bit before the pandemic, doesn't it? Do you want to sort of take us back and explain how it all began for you? Yeah, my first experience with cancer was about 10 years ago. And when I first got diagnosed with stage two breast cancer in December, ending of November, 2009. And then I got diagnosed. It was a strange journey before I got diagnosed with the symptoms I've been having. Because why I say that, I, I wasn't aware or first say educated about breast cancer symptoms and signs so I found this bruise on my right breast leading me to feel my left breast and this where I found the lump so um, I was in America also on holiday then so when I land here I had to rush to A&E because of the pain I was having with the bruise so from then on I got booked to see my GP straight from the hospital bed so I got seen by my GP, sent for test, and got diagnosed stage two breast cancer, November two thousand nine, which leads to surgery, clearance of the lymph nodes plus a lumpectomy, and then I've started treatment chemotherapy March two thousand ten, about a week before my birthday. So no, great birthday been, present for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've been through chemotherapy, radiotherapy that time, and on medications. So it's been a journey during that time up until when I got um this um I think July last year it was when I finished with the tamoxifen, and I was I reached to that point where I was excited say yeah this journey is finished and then i'll be moving on to a new phase that's when i got diagnosed the second time so tell us about the second time then because uh, uh, as you said you just you just finished all your treatment you know you were looking forward to you know a cancer free future you yeah. know getting on with your life hopefully as much as you can putting it behind you we're in the we're in the first bit of lockdown, I think. Am I right in yes. saying the first the first initial initial part of lockdown? Yes. And then what happened? You were you were diagnosed with the different kind of cancer. Yes, it was a different kind of cancer, different markings because I thought it was secondary, but it turns out it's a different markings from the breast cancer. It was lump I found under my under my just below my chin here, and. Before lockdown, I found the lump and was referred for scans. And then 
I was told when lockdown started, about a week before lockdown started, I got a letter saying everything has cancelled and I was so I started to panic because it's a lump and I know what I've been associated with lumps before. So I started to panic. Honestly, I was terrified knowing that I got a cancellation. But luckily, a week after the cancellation, I've got a call said, if I can come in to do the, the scan. And I was super excited. So when I went in, I did the scans at the hospital and I was told I need to do some biopsies. So doing those biopsies, there I found a tumor also on my right thyroid, which that was another shocker. So I did all those tests and repeat, even repeating those biopsies was so painful and just scary. So I was told, when I went in, I was told it's cancer. And it was, I thought I was hearing something different, honestly. I was numb. I was literally numb. Because even when when I left the room, my daughter was asking, Mommy, are you okay? How, how are you feeling? And honestly, I was numb for about two or three days. And because they keep asking me, are you okay? How are you feeling? I just didn't have words to say how I was feeling. It's after those initial like three days, I realized how numb I was hearing the word cancer again. And in the midst of the pandemic, because the lockdown started March 23rd on my birthday, and it's the March, April, May, June, I got diagnosed, did a double surgery in August. So it was a scary journey, but in the midst of the scare and the panic and the anxieties I was going through, I was honestly happy to know I got seen because I know it could be more sinister than that. Was there any anxiety uh, initially about about going into hospital or going to see your GP or, or about any of the kind of the touch points because of, of the pandemic? Was there any anxiety that you had about that? Oh, yes, yeah. I have lots of anxieties, scare, fearful, everything to do with, with scare and terror. But I think in the midst of that challenging time, I try to look at the bigger picture thinking, in spite of what's going on, I may contract the virus, I may die, I may. So I said, what's there to lose? Let me go and get this thing checked out. Because when I got the letter, not the letter, the, the call said I should come in. And that was when lockdown initially started. And I said, should I go? Should I not? And honestly, I was between like a rock and a hard place and I decide to say you know what let me just go yeah and I go in spite of the fear I went and I didn't regret going so how was how was the treatment progressed after that after that initial and uh, the surgery you said in, in August? August how was your treatment and the and the condition uh, 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 progressed since then yeah, it has been progressing fairly well. 
and I've had my follow-ups. I didn't have to do any chemotherapy, which I was dreading if I had to go through all that again, the chemo and radiotherapy. I was just being um, getting checked and reviewed, and I'm still on the review. But I guess, I guess the, in one of the important things to say is that you know you you actually went to see you know you actually sought uh, advice to if the lump that you knew you had whereas i think a lot of people the problem with the pandemic is people aren't aren't getting things checked out they're not getting their lumps and bumps and and um you know things that maybe concern them uh, they aren't yeah. getting them checked out so what would your kind of message be to people that maybe are listening to this who you know have an unexplained bump maybe some bleeding that's unexplained maybe a bruise that hasn't gone away anything like that, what would you say to them? I would say in spite of the situation, the current times we're living in and being aware of what's going on in your body and the scare is out there regarding the pandemic, I'd say to anyone, use that fear and go and get yourself looked at because it's better to use that fear as a channel of knowing what's happening inside your body than not going and then that fear can create a more sinister sinister um, thing in your life so i said use the fear as a positive tool and go and get checked that's fantastic advice i think charmaine what what's been the most difficult bit you know, you've dealt with a cancer diagnosis, you know, 10 years ago before the pandemic, and you've dealt with one during mm. the pandemic. What's been the most uh, challenging thing about this most recent cancer diagnosis? The most challenging thing is it happened during a critical time when we're going through a pandemic, which so many lives have been lost and going into hospital, knowing I'm going to go under the knife, going to do a surgery, do especially a double surgery and thinking, am I going to come out alive? Am I going to contract the virus while in hospital? And all sorts of thoughts was going through, which was challenging. But as I said, I use that challenge and that fear, that thought process. That's what kept me thinking, just do it. Oh, that's fantastic, Charmaine. Did that first experience help you cope with the second one? Did that? Do you think it would have been a lot more difficult maybe if your initial cancer diagnosis had been during the pandemic? Did the first one kind of prepare you for dealing with the second one? I think it has prepared me and even makes me more stronger mentally to go because the first experience I've gone through with cancer, it was really a challenging time also because I was literally sick. I had blood clot in my lungs, was in hospital for five days during that. And a lot of sicknesses I've gone through even during chemotherapy. So those challenging times, I think it helps. Let me just push forward with this second diagnosis, saying I've been through so much with that first experience. So what's there to lose? Um, as we as we speak now, uh, we're mm. able to you know, give our loved ones a cuddle. Um, 
I bet that's I bet that's been amazing to finally be able to have a cuddle from your loved ones after you know after such a difficult you know last twelve months. Yes, it definitely has been. Just getting that cuddle, that hug, reassures me that there's hope. Oh, such a lovely way to end. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Charmaine Sangster. Thank you, thank you, and nice speaking to you too. Thank you so much to Dave, to Kirsty, and of course the wonderful Charmaine for sharing their stories and their experience of dealing with cancer during the pandemic. And thank you also to you for listening to the very first episode of the GM Cancer Podcast. This is a monthly podcast, so you've got a few weeks to wait until the next episode. But in the meantime, we want to hear from you. If you've got a topic suggestion, a guest suggestion, or any feedback on what we've talked about today, find GM Cancer on social media and get in touch. That's at GM Cancer on Twitter, and you can also find GM Cancer on Facebook too.